Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Since purchasing Twitter, Elon Musk has drastically scaled back on the site's content moderation and staff. As of this week, Elon Musk has told the remaining employees at Twitter that they will need to be extremely hardcore or leave the company. Today, we hear from Amanda J. Crawford, assistant professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut, about the real consequences of misinformation on the platform. But first, we hear from a former Twitter employee, Melissa Ingalls, who was recently laid off. We hear about their experience working at a company as a data scientist. We want to hear from you. Are you still using Twitter? What has your experience been like on the platform? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I want to thank uh, Melissa for uh, joining us today. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Uh, thank you. Um, can you talk to us about how you ended up working at Twitter? Absolutely. So first of all, I'm a longtime fan of the platform. I've been on, I've been a Twitter user since 2009. Um, about six years ago, I completed my degree in data science and um, they were looking for a senior uh, data scientist at Twitter a little over a year ago. And I, I jumped at the chance. And what was it like working at Twitter during your first days and years, considering you were a fan? Uh, it was really amazing. Everybody who works there is uh, incredibly dedicated, uh, very intelligent. Everybody really believes in the product and trying to make it a better product. And what was that product? Sure. So to a large degree, Twitter was content moderation. We were attempting to keep the site, uh, you know, free of uh, toxicity, to keep, make it a place where people would want to be, that, that town square that uh, Twitter aspired to be. And what was the culture like at Twitter before Elon Musk took over? Yeah, so the culture was highly, you know, very, very collaborative. Um, everybody was sharing information, a lot of cross-functional you know, uh, meetings where we were all trying to help each other out and inform each other's uh, o opinions, very supportive of each other's work and um, just trying to cross-pollinate as much as we could. So what does it mean being a data scientist? Can you sort of walk us through what were your responsibilities like and what does it mean to be a data scientist? Yeah, it's sort of this nebulous term, right? Um, so uh, I specialized in uh, natural language processing algorithms. So these are machine learning algorithms that um, are really great at scanning text. So I worked in a department called um, Civic Integrity. Um, so that meant that I um, scanned for political misinformation. So uh, our tweets, uh, we had a bunch of uh, algorithms, we called them bots that would go out and scan Twitter and look for tweets that had political misinformation and sort of rate them on this scale. And if they had enough uh, words or phrases that we were sort of looking for, we would uh, flag them as having uh, potential misinformation in them. And so you say we, what, were you part of a big team? Was it a small team or what was that like? 
For sure. So um, my immediate team working on uh, of data scientists working on political misinformation, or there was a team of three. We rolled up into a department of about 30 data scientists who covered all sorts of um uh, all, all sorts of misinformation and abuse. This is something, you know, anything from, uh, you know, uh, harassment to, you know, very harmful things like pornography or child trafficking or um, even more mundane things like copyright infringement, right? And so um, we were, uh, my team was a small part of that. And as, as I mentioned that we work with uh, sort of in a cross-functional way. So, you know, I, I we were a truly global uh, company. We covered the elections in Brazil, for instance. So we covered the U.S. midterm elections. Um, we worked really closely, hand in hand, with people who helped us understand the issues affecting the local cultures around the world. And we'd write algorithms that were specialized in those areas and in that language. And uh, also, there was a very, very large, about 4,000 person human review team that was responsible for actually doing the grunt work of looking at the tweets. And, and they were the real heroes because they were exposed to some truly toxic information. And we would take their input and use that to tune our models as well. So you were part of a team of three and it's bigger than a 30 member team and going up to 4,000. But th those numbers still seem very small comparing to the misinformation you must have been dealing with. Um, when you were doing that on that platform, you know, what was your approach? What did that look like? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you're right. It, it was not um, it was not quite sufficient. And the the the. I think there's this popular conception of uh, machine learning and it's like, oh, it, it, it works like the human brain and it's always learning and it's you can just sort of think by itself. And, and that's not quite true. Like any other program, it can only learn the things we tell it to learn. So uh, machine, these natural language processing algorithms are, are sort of notoriously um, uh, leaky, let's say. Um, they are bad. At, they can't detect the tone of speech. So parody or satire, notoriously bad at detecting that. And that's really why you need this human review team. But on the other hand, there is something like 37 and a half million uh, tweets per hour at Twitter, and no human review force is going to be big enough for that. So a hundred, I mean, absolutely, we missed things. Things went through the crack, uh, the cracks, um, but uh, you need sort of both of these systems in place. Well, you mentioned collaboration. It, it sounds like it's a collaboration between human and machine. And clearly, you loved your job. You love this industry. Did you take a lot of pride in the work that you did there? Absolutely. You could see a, sort of a tangible effect in flagging misinformation. And again, not just in the US, uh, but, but around the world. And you think, well, you know, I helped to keep um, the elections about the elections, the, the elections as information, you know, as sort of misinformation free as possible. I, I, again, things do definitely slip through the cracks. Um, yeah, it really felt like it's truly important work, especially since we've seen the effects that misinformation could have. Um, the 2016 elections are a prime example. Um, QAnon is another example. We can just see the effect that these uh, these ideas can have. 
And I really love that you're sort of painting a picture that there are human beings behind these technical platforms、mm. that makes it work, right? And can you talk about those days, like you mentioned, where you had a lot of work against misinformation, especially you were combating a lot of election-related issues,、mm. and I can't imagine COVID misinformation. Yeah, COVID was another huge issue that we were looking for, as especially as it intersects with politics, because it it actually it absolutely does with. Even certain、um, politicians,、uh, both here and abroad, tweeting out misinformation. As、uh, elections would approach, you know, as I, I mentioned, the Brazilian or the U.S. elections, a lot of our focus would turn towards those elections. A lot of our manpower would turn towards those. But it's really difficult because you need people who are able to understand the local language and the local culture. I don't. Speak Portuguese. I'm not. I don't claim to be an expert on Brazilian culture, but I can write an algorithm with、uh, a local expert with their input to help look for the things that they think are important. And you have to, like you mentioned earlier, things unfortunately do fall through the cracks.、Yeah. Um, is misinformation hard to get ahead of? What do you What do you do to keep up? Especially since you know a lot of people are on this platform, they're tweeting all the time. You know, how do you get ahead of that? It's actually you you identified something. It's actually really really difficult to keep up with political misinformation because the nature of political discourse changes all the time. It's constantly. Uh, evolving, and your algorithm is only as good as you've trained it to be.、Um, the example I I give here is,、um, if we remember, there was a very popular conspiracy theory of about five to six years ago,、uh, PizzaGate.、Uh, if I wrote an algorithm in 2022 that was looking for misinformation related to the PizzaGate conspiracy theory,、uh, you know, it might find some. There's people, some people still talking about it, but it no longer shapes the political discourse. In the way that it once did, so you can you need to continually be updating and, and manning、uh, these these algorithms, and and a lot of that was looking at trending topics, was speaking to human reviewers, was watching what was actually getting flagged, because an individual user could flag a post as being spam, as being abuse, and that was、uh, user reported、um, tools were were a huge input for us. And you mentioned that,、um, of course, your work has a, a larger focus on U.S. politics. But can you touch a little bit about why is it important to keep track of everything going on internationally? Yeah, just like in the U.S.,、um, there, there's lots of misinformation. So you know, we know in the recent、uh, Brazilian election, just for instance, I, I mentioned because it's something we worked on.、Um, It was Lula da Silva、uh, versus Jair Bolsonaro, and Bolsonaro was uh, a big uh, COVID uh, COVID denier.、Um, he did not.、Um, he was highly skeptical of、um, the lockdowns, and and and、uh, despite having had, had caught COVID himself, and it was truly this.、Uh, I mean, it's just truly this this cat and mouse game of of, of just trying to. To keep up with everything,、um, I, I know just recently、um, there was a, a missile that had.、Um, sorry, speaking of the war in Ukraine, there was a lot of misinformation、uh, related to that. There was a missile which fell into Poland, and initially was thought to have been Russian. And many, many figures, including、uh, Justin Trudeau, the the PM of Canada,、uh, 
uh, tweeted uh, about this and World War III was the the, the topic, um, one of the trending topics on Twitter. And, and we needed to be a very light and reactive force to deal with that kind of thing. We're talking about the future of Twitter today with former Twitter employee Melissa Ingle. Are you still on Twitter? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Melissa, when you first heard that Elon Musk was buying Twitter, what was going through your mind? Uh, I, I can just say that for myself and my team, just extremely distressed. Um, Mr. Musk had uh, had a history of inflammatory comments um, and specifically related to my field, content moderation. He was extremely disparaging about the work that the content moderation team was doing. And, you know, speaking as someone who works in the field, um, his uh, his opinions really lacked nuance uh, or, or subtlety. They just betrayed a really a lack of a, of a deep understanding of the topic. And so it really felt like we had um, a target on our backs. And tell us more about his understanding of content moderation, how he wanted to run the platform. And you, you mentioned it's sort of like a town square. He said something similar as referring yeah. to Twitter as a global town square. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, and then that's the that's Twitter at its ideal. And I, I really am a I I still am on the platform. I, I really do love Twitter. And I think at its best. That's what it can be, it, it, and it can really be this this empathy uh, machine at its best. Um, it can show, teach you about different cultures and ideas and perspectives you would not encounter elsewhere. And his idea of um, content moderation is he wants to have this sort of free speech platform to as as much of an extent possible. But if you look across the social media landscape, that's not a realistic goal. If you look at platforms that have very, very little content moderation, such as Gab, uh, you see that they, they quickly become incredibly toxic. Um, in 2019, um, Reddit, uh, a platform with a, a, a history or a reputation of having a lot of toxicity, made the decision to institute major content moderation policies and, and kicked off a lot of subreddits such as R the Donald and some uh, left-wing um, left um, subreddits as well that were, were propagating misinformation. And you need to have that content moderation or people don't want to be on a site on a site filled with abuse and hate and racism and misinformation. And advertisers don't want to have their brand associated with that. And so I kind of want to uh, talk on uh, talk about content moderation a bit and misinformation. I feel like these are phrases that didn't really come into you know the, the quote quote regular world until fairly recently. You know, what are your perspectives on that, especially since you're you're immersed in the tech industry? Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Content moderation is a is a, is a relatively um, new term. We are all learning. This is something we learn painfully that we need. Uh, on social media platforms. Um, Twitter was uh, unfortunately something of a, a late adopter uh, before about 2019 or so. We certainly did have some content moderation, but it was not specialized to the degree that it was today. And, and, and these are things that we didn't just come up with. These are things that we learned through hard uh, fought knowledge of, of seeing 
misinformation spread on the platform and then the platform really being used to weaponize that. And you mentioned advertising and investment. So it sounds like content moderation is some sort of business. It absolutely is. In fact, it's been said that the business of Twitter uh, was content moderation. Uh, it was keeping the platform free of toxicity so that it could be a positive place um, for users and, and a place where uh, employees, employ, sorry, a place where advertisers would feel free to spend. That's how Twitter uh, makes its money is through ad sales. And, uh, you know, you're coming from a perspective of working in the tech industry, but are there things that users can be more aware of in terms of content moderation? Yeah, we've placed tags now on, for example, articles where if you try to tweet out an article and you have not clicked on the link, it'll say, do you want to read this? <laughs> do you think you want to read this article before you uh, tweet it out? So we're trying to say, just take that extra step as a user to really don't just forward along, don't just retweet. Uh, an article that someone says uh, expresses a certain view. Take the time to read it. Take the time to think about it, and 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 really do uh, your own research of trying to see if this is corroborated. And I, that feels like a heavy load for people, but I, I think it's going to be extremely important, especially going forward if Twitter even survives as a platform, uh, because the moderation. Um, is just not there anymore. And the abuse and misinformation is going to be propagated at a much greater rate. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. We're hearing from Melissa Engel, a data scientist who formerly worked at Twitter. Coming up, Melissa stays with us and we hear her thoughts about the future of the company. We also would love to hear from you. What has your experience been like on Twitter? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're hearing from Melissa Engel, a data scientist who formerly worked at Twitter, and she was just laid off last week. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Melissa, you mentioned in the previous segment that you, you loved your job, you loved the industry. Did you want to stay with the company? Absolutely. I 
really, really wanted to to stay there because I felt my work was important. I felt we were making a, a real difference. Um, you could see the misinformation that we were helping to filter out, to flag. Uh, if an account got too big, uh, I should say if a, if a sort of piece of misinformation got too big, we could help remove that from the platform and, and keep it, uh, you know, a positive uh, place. And how did you find out that you got laid off? And as a contractor, what does that mean for you? Yeah. So um, as you are probably aware, there was an initial round of layoffs of the full-time employees, which happened on um, Thursday, November 3rd to Friday, November 4th. Um, those employees were laid off. Um, we sort of formed a, a group chat to commiserate outside of of Twitter, and you could see as uh, the 11 o'clock, 11 p.m. sort of local time hit, people were being um, cut off. Um, so as 11 p.m. East Coast, our, our East Coast employees, oh, I've been locked out. Uh, I can't get in the system. I've been logged off my computer. And then we could see it happen in Chicago and in Denver. And it was this enormous wave sort of rolling across the United States. And it was incredibly grim to, to see it coming towards you and not know if it was going to, to strike you or not. In that initial round, my boss was laid off. And my boss's boss, the head of the department, uh, immediately, or she, she, she resigned soon after that. Um, I was then left without a boss, uh, without a command structure, and without a clear assignment of what I should do. And keep in mind, we are days, mere days away from the U.S. midterm elections. So everybody who was left in our reduced workforce was scrambling to keep the site free of misinformation in, in the last few days leading up to the election. Um, without a clear, uh, is this work going to be appreciated? Is this what we should be doing? This is just what we felt we should be doing. And then um, this past Saturday, I guess it's the 12th of Saturday, November 12th, um, I was looking at my phone uh, about 5.30 p.m. Uh, I was with my daughter at the mall here in San Francisco. And um, I received a pop-up uh, notification on my phone that said, you've been logged out of one or more of uh, systems on your phone. And I checked my Twitter mail uh, app and my Twitter Slack, and I had been logged out of both of those. So that's how I knew that I had been laid off. I think it's incredible hearing your experience and having it sort of mirror in the headlines that I mean, readers are reading in, in the news. What was your reaction to the way they laid off employees? I, I cannot believe that they laid off employees uh, in this way. These are these are dedicated, um, highly intelligent, highly skilled employees who are, who are trying to do their best. And I, I want to say that it, it, it does look like um, we see layoffs in other, you know, at, at Meta or at Amazon. I think it's very possible that some amount of layoffs were necessary. I've been in the tech industry for quite a while now, and the way layoffs are handled is uh, typically your your boss or someone senior in the organization sits you down either in person or in the or, or on a Zoom, and you know breaks the news to you. It's it's always devastating, and people want to make uh, the the that soften that blow as much as possible. To have these sort of mass layoffs done by just logging you out of the system, not telling you just logging you out of the system, it, it's incredibly disrespectful. And, um, yeah. I, know, I was going to continue your thought. No, I, I just, I, I can't believe that 
after the initial round of layoffs, and, and it, it resulted in, in such a political, such a in such negative press, and, and everybody sort of pointed out how horrible it was that that was exactly they didn't learn anything. It's exactly how the next round of layoffs with the contractors was handled. And you mentioned contractors. You yourself are a contractor. Are you eligible for severance or any kind of benefits? Unfortunately, not. Um, and that's really um, it's it's going to be really tough. I have two children. I I live in San Francisco. It's one of the most expensive cities uh, in the world. And also, you know, uh, Christmas is coming up in, in a little over uh, five to five, about five or six weeks. It's coming up. And, you know, as a parent, you, you want to be able to provide uh, for your children. And, you know, the full-time employees got uh, paid through the end of November and then uh, were promised two months of severance after that as they should be, as they absolutely should be to honor, you know, to their contributions. Um, I'm not getting that. I, I have nothing. So it's extremely, uh, I'm sort of kind of in a precarious situation. You have shared your experience about being fired. Um, why did you decide to go public about your experience? And what has that response been like for you? Yeah. So initially, I tweeted out that um, I had been laid off without warning, just being logged out of the system. And this got picked up. It got uh, a lot of likes and, and, and retweets. Um, and I've been contacted by a, a number of, of journalists who are who are interested in the platform as well. But I've also been um, subject to abuse. I, I've never seen uh, this level of abuse. Um, if I can say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trans woman, it's certainly not relevant to my work. I just show up every day and, and do my job. Um, but people went back through my Twitter feed and, and found uh, photos of me and, and commented extremely disgusting and disparaging things. A meme was created um, with my face mocking my appearance um, at about 36,000 uh, likes with people saying uh, the worst things. I've been called uh, mentally ill, told my children should be removed, um, and called a man, said I had a beard. Um, it's just been really, um, it's it's tough to deal with on a human level. Um, uh, just two days ago, uh, someone DMs me threatening uh, threatening to shoot me, and and that's just um, probably just someone uh, who, who's not serious, but it's 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 extremely distressing um, to find. And, and I've also been doxxed with people finding my personal information uh, on the internet. I am so sorry that that's been your experience. And I'm sure you sharing your experience with Twitter has been enlightening to those who are following the story as it can, it continues to unfold. Um, what are your biggest concerns in regards to the future of Twitter? Yeah. With the, um, you know, the, the large number of data scientists um, who've been laid off and the human workforce, which has almost entirely been laid off, um, there's no one left uh, anymore to to. There's very few people left to to sort of guard the system. We've already seen reports of abuse rise. Um, before I left, a colleague of mine showed me that abuse complaints had increased 50% day over day since uh, Musk's purchase, and a, stud a recent study by Tufts University uh, essentially confirmed the same. I want to explain a little bit that, you know, 
as the algorithms are no longer being updated, as the nature of political discourse changes, um, the algorithms, uh, there's not enough people around to sort of update them and, and keep them fresh. And with the entire human workforce gone, we are definitely going to see rises in abuse, rises in political misinformation uh, across the board. It's, it's, it's really distressing to think about. And joining us now to talk about misinformation on the app is Amanda J. Crawford. She's an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Connecticut teaching media law. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Um, You just heard what Melissa said. Um, Can you talk about the real consequences of misinformation and having this sort of Wild West platform out there? Why is it that it won't work? Look, we have we have a long history of seeing the impact of misinformation on on social media, from the harassment of crime victims to you know staging the January sixth insurrection. Um, we can't pretend that our experience with social media um, allows us to believe that it doesn't have a direct impact on the real world. It does. We know this. The people running Twitter know this. That's why they employed people like Melissa, right, to take care of this. Um, and you know, misinformation can have a disastrous impact in countries around the world and even here in our political system. And we've seen that impact. So, um, you know, from it it just has such a widespread from the level of individual harassment that Melissa detailed that she's experiencing up through, um, you know, things that can um, lead to political violence in countries around the world. So it has a, a big impact. Can you bring out an example of what that impact may look like? Well, I mean, we we saw the insurrection at the at Jan- January 6, twenty twenty one, at the U.S. Capitol, right? I mean, there's a lot of evidence that you know people who, I mean, obviously, the whole uh, insurrection was fueled by misinformation, by a lie about the election, by belief in the absurd tenets of QAnon, um, these kind of anti-government beliefs, and so it can have a direct impact in you know an attempt to overthrow a country leadership, um, and that's what we saw. So you know, we've seen this now. We have this history of more than a decade. And Elon Musk takes over Twitter as if he hasn't been paying attention and doesn't know what the issues are, right? And can you talk about sort of recent events? You mentioned Elon Musk take, um, getting this company, and, and it seems like a lot of things have been changing since then. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we we saw really right away the direction of, you know, what his belief system was about Twitter and whether misinformation was a problem. Right away, you know, we around the time that he took over was the attack on Paul Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. That attack was fueled by misinformation. Um, it was fueled by, you know, right-wing conspiracy theories that led to the attack. And then we see a whole bunch of right wing conspiracy theories then, you know, circulating to explain away the attack and pretend like it didn't really happen or that somehow the victim was at fault. And immediately, Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, tweets out a fake news article from a known fake news site spreading that conspiracy theory. Um, So I think that that was a real indication of where he comes down on this debate about whether misinformation is a problem. He seems to think that the bad information, that misinformation, that this, these dangerous conspiracy theories that we have seen lead to violence, that those are some kind of protected free speech that his platform, this public square, you know, should allow. Um, and that's a, a sort of like a scary, um, you know, perspective after the history of the last decade. Um 
you know, we also saw right away that um, he went after the verification system at Twitter. Um, and he, he, you know, he said that he, it was clear that he thought the problem on the platform wasn't this terrible misinformation, you know, the lies about people leading to violence. Instead, he thought the problem was the elitist journalist who had the check, check marks. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that the Twitter verification system didn't create an elitist, um, you know, level. Certainly, um, it was much easier to get verified if you worked for a big media corporation. And so I can see some complaints about that. I'm personally not verified on Twitter because I don't work for a big media organization. Um, but, you know, his perspective seemed to be that there was no value in verifying people's identity. And he seemed to find in the wake of that, this rash of, of you know, uh, fake accounts. We saw um, fake accounts, you know, when he created Twitter Blue, allowing anyone to get that check mark, right? We immediately saw um, phony accounts pretending to be Joe Biden um, saying sexually explicit things. And we saw a company, um, Eli Lilly, get, you know, uh, have some fake information sent out from what looked like an, a verified account from them. And so he didn't seem like he understood why that system was important to protect, um, you know, discourse. Well, speaking of protecting discourse and journalists, you, you, you teach journalism students. And how important do you think Twitter is as a tool for journalists? And how are you talking to your students about the changing landscape? I think that it's I think that that's really the the reality is that journalists have been among the groups that have used Twitter a lot. Right. I mean, I turned to Twitter for my news. I always have. I don't tweet a ton um, anymore, but, um, you know, I've always turned to it for news and that's been its important source. So if you take away that level of verification, is this really coming from, you know, NBC or is this a fake account? Right. Is this really coming from The New York Times or not? Then you've really hampered the ability of users to tell whether or not they're getting, um, you know, correct information. So at a very basic level, just allowing people to make a decision about the content that they share or that they absorb and read, the verification system was that. It was allowing people to make a decision about what's a reliable source, right? Um, and, you know, that that misunderstanding, you know, about what it was for, you know, was, was one of the reasons we saw, you know, it get scaled back right away. Um, you know, for journalists, I think that, you know, there are lots of tools out there and, um, you know, we can move on. But, you know, it, it, Twitter has been an important source for a long time for journalists. And as we watch this happen, it seems like every day there's something different. Do you think Elon Musk could be subject to lawsuits if he doesn't have a better grasp on this misinformation? Well, I mean, Section 230 um, of the Communication Decency Act provides a lot of protection for um, for for misinformation that comes from users on these platforms. Um, there's been a lot of debate over many years about whether or not that needs to be changed. Um, and certainly seeing what's happening with Twitter, maybe that brings that conversation back up. But I, I don't see a lot of ability to, you know, there may be labor issues that Musk can be sued over or other things, you know, in, in that realm. But as far as suing over the misinformation on the platform, there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of legal ability with those kind of protections. I want to bring the conversation back to Melissa real quick. Um, the prospect of Twitter completely shutting down. What are your thoughts about that? You know, because there's a lot of information relationships built on Twitter and could it be a huge loss for them? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you refer back to that um, sort of public town square, uh, you know, aspect of, of Twitter, which Twitter can be at its best, as you say, people have built, um, people have built, you know, followings and and, and important networks on there to, um, you know, to, to keep abreast of issues, to keep abreast of uh, the news. And we're already seeing like major um, site outages um, reported, uh, you know, across the U.S. And I I just think it's going to be another, uh, the removal of another tool in this kind of um, misinformation and sort of lack of information as as it's being spread. It's just going to make things a lot darker in terms of information. I'm from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Amanda J. Crawford, Assistant Professor of Journalism at the University of Connecticut Teaching Media Law. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, we hear from the Digital Preservation Coalition on the importance of digital archiving. Melissa Engel, a data scientist who formerly worked with Twitter, stays with us. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. If you left Twitter, did you download your Twitter data before you left? Preserving digital data presents more challenges than you think. Our next guest is head of workforce development at the Digital Preservation Coalition. Sharon McKeon, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me today. It's been great to join you. And tell us about your work as a digital archivist. Um, When I see the word archivist, I think of old books and tea-stained papers. So what does it look like in a digital space? It's definitely a lot different from what you might expect in the physical world. So um, if you have a a library book on a shelf or a document in a storage box, we have a, a certain expectation that if we go back to it in, say, 10 years' time, barring any kind of disasters like theft, flood or fire. We've got a a reasonably good expectation that that book, that document, it's still going to be there. It's still going to be usable. And as long as we speak the language that it's written in, we're still going to be able to understand it. But that's very much not the case for digital information. So if you store a digital image or a document, for example, on a hard drive, will you still be able to access it in 10 years? Will that drive still work? Will you have the right connector for attaching it to your laptop? Do you, will you still have the right software for opening the files? Will they still be uncorrupted? And those are some of the issues that we are trying to manage in, in digital archiving to make sure that we can provide sustained access to digital information. And that involves a, a really quite varied uh, ta- list of tasks um, around addressing those kind of issues from working with information creators to make sure that information itself with data is being created in formats that we can actually preserve over time. We have to really assess digital information and data to decide what we actually need to preserve in the long term, because frankly, most custodial organisations don't have the resources to keep everything. We need to catalogue and index that information so that we continue to identify it, find it and use it. We work with colleagues in IT departments to help develop the technical infrastructures that we need. Uh, We need to understand how to provide access as well. 
what software are users going to need, what skills will they need to have, what additional supporting information will we need to be able to understand the digital data. Um, and we need to plan for the steps that we need to take to actually carry out all of these preservation actions to allow us to access and reuse it over time. So it really requires a quite a wide range of skills and knowledge, including things like project management, teamworking, communications, technology, legal and social issues, as well as kind of traditional archive um, information management skills themselves. Sounds like a gigantic department. And I'm glad that you mentioned hard drive because I'm not going to lie, I was picturing Indiana Jones sort of dusting off a USB. Um, can you talk about the importance of digital preservation and what does that look like for us? So basically, without digital preservation, we don't have any guarantees that digital information is going to survive for the future. And um, everything we do today revolves around digital information. Um, it's how we communicate with each other. It's how we bank, how we shop, how we access healthcare. Almost every element of our lives has some kind of digital information element to it. So if we're not actively managing and preserving this digital information, it's going to cause us problems, both in terms of kind of long term documentation of human history, but even in the short term, uh, will the systems that we need to survive on a daily basis continue to be available to us? So it sounds like this data feels like it's a different language. So. How will digital preservation help scholars and historians do their research? Is, is it something that they have to get special training in, you think, or is it just like any other researcher? It's definitely going to require um, some additional skills uh, for people who are, are working with digital data. Um, some skills similar to the ones that we've heard around uh, kind of Melissa's work at Twitter. We have you need to have a lot more skills around kind of analysing and understanding data. And some of that's going to certainly need to happen at on an automated level because of the scale of the digital information that's out there and the kind of levels of kind of obtuse kind of levels of obtusity between um, actually being able to kind of uh, have a piece of digital information on a hard drive and then being able to access it. It's not like a book that you can pick up, it reads, you need to have the correct configuration of hardware and software in place to even be able to open a digital file. So we're seeing um, a lot of kind of memory institutions are really having to invest in um, new access routes for providing access to information uh, for researchers and uh, looking at developing new technologies and new solutions for how they can actually open and integrate and reuse this data. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Twitter data because I wanted to ask, you know, why are we hearing now about a need to download our Twitter data and what does that haul look like? So uh, Twitter is such an important resource for potential kind of future research um, and understanding who we are as a society today. I was reading an article actually earlier um, this morning. I'm um, in the UK, so it's in the afternoon for me. Um, it was in the MIT Technology Review um, by a British journalist called Crystal Cole Walker about the kind of ubiquity of Twitter and uh, these social media platforms. And there's so many of us using them now that they're almost like a, a de facto public archive. And as Melissa's mentioned, they have that kind of town square kind of element to them that it's a place where we go and we share so much about ourselves. 
Um, it's a place for news, as Amanda mentioned. It's an important tool for the workplace, um, for organisations who are want to advertise products. For me, it's a place where I can connect with colleagues at different organisations and in different countries to share experiences and advice. It could be a forum for communication about important social justice movements like Black Lives Matter and the current protests in Iran. It's also a way to keep um, those in power to account. Uh, it plays an important role in um, world events. And finally, on a kind of personal and social level, it's very important to people. Um, and getting that data um, and having it in a usable way is, is kind of what we really need. And there's a real worry at the moment about the kind of longevity of Twitter and the, whether the data from that is going to survive in the long term. Are we going to lose the potential it has for these really kind of rich potential research purposes? Um, it's been kind of described as um, possibly um, the kind of richest um, kind of gold mine of, of information about um, any kind of era in history that there might ever be because there's so much interaction over there. Um, but uh, it's not just about the raw data itself. It, Twitter itself is a conversation and being able to actually preserve that conversation is one of the hardest things. It's not just about capturing the individual data of tweets. It's the context of the replies and the retweets about who followed who, how many likes a post received and plus issues around things like link shortening um, services like Bitly, where a tweet might have a shortened link to uh, external content. But if that link shortening service is no longer available, then uh, are we going to be able to get out there to that kind of additional um, content? And it's going to take a lot of computing power as well and the right infrastructure to be able to maintain those connections in that context, which exists at um, a social media itself, for example, Twitter. Um, but once you take the data away and it's divorced from those systems, it's hard to maintain those that context and those connections. And does anybody really have the time, the skills, the money to create such massive technological infrastructures? Um, one of the kind of key case studies from digital preservation is around the gift of tweets uh, that uh, Twitter made to the Library of Congress in 2010. It was a real kind of landmark agreement of collaboration between Twitter as a commercial company and um, a, a memory institution like the Library of Congress. But unfortunately, it didn't come along with the funding required to actually support the work that was needed to preserve and provide access to that data. There's only a small team at the Library of Congress working on this, as well as numerous other digital preservation and web archiving projects under their remit. So there's been little chance of actually ever being able to provide um, meaningful access to this data uh, because they don't have the budget, um, the time and the skills required to um, actually index it in a way that researchers will ever be able to access. So that data is there now, been, they've had that data for 12 years and it continues to not be um, accessible. And in fact, the Library of Congress has changed its collecting policies around Twitter data to go for a more selective approach because really that feels all it's can really manage in the long term. And Melissa, we have a couple minutes left, so I wanted to give you some space to share if you have any next steps planned, um, recognizing that this has all happened so quickly for you. 
Yeah, thank you. It's it's been extremely uh, disorienting, uh, to say the least. Um, I'm I'm trying to um, apply for jobs as as fast as possible. It's it's uh, in a down economy, of course. Um, I will say that a lot of the former uh, Twitter employees, uh, known as Tweeps, uh, uh, have uh, been incredibly supportive. We're all out there trying to help each other out. My boss gave me a job recommendation and uh, recommended me to someone who's doing some hiring. And um, it's been very, very um, helpful and heartening to see everybody try to help each other out. Melissa Ningo is a data scientist who formerly worked at Twitter. Thank you so much for telling us your story. We appreciate your time and generosity. Thank you. Best of luck to you. And uh, Sharon McMeekin is the head of uh, Workforce Development at Digital Preservation Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Jean Amatruda. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend.